Thank you for listening to the Motion City Church Podcast. In our second week of our series titled Anticipation, we will continue in our discussion on the peace we receive through Jesus' birth. Let's listen in. Waited for him on the edge of their seats, on the edge of where excitement and containment meet, they waited. Like a child watches out the window for the father to return from work, they waited. Like a groom stares at the double doors at the back of the church, they waited. And in their waiting, they had hope. Hope that was fully pledged to a God they had not seen. To a God who had promised a king. A king who would reign over the enemy, over Satan's tyranny. They waited. And so it was centuries of expectations with various combinations of differing schools of thought. Some people expecting a political king who would rise to the throne through the wars that he fought, while others expecting a priest who would restore peace through the penetration of the Pharisees' facade. Yet a baby, 100% human, 100% God. And so the word became flesh and was here to dwell among us in his fullness, grace upon grace, Jesus. You see, through him and for him, all things were created, and in him, all things are sustained. God had made himself known for the glory of his name, and this child would one day rise as king, but it would not be by the sword or an insurgent regime. It would be by his life. A life that would revolutionize everything the world knew. He would endure temptation and persecution all while staying true. Humbly healing the broken, the sick and hurting too. Ministering reconciliation, turning the old to new. A life that would be the very definition of what life really costs. Saying, if you desire life, then your crown must be lost. And he would portray that with his own life as his father would pour out and exhaust. And he would be obedient to the point of death even death upon a cross. And so just 33 years after the day that he laid, swaddled in the hay, he hung on a tree, suffocating, dying in our place, absorbing wrath that is rightly ours, but we could never bear the weight. And so he took that punishment and he put it in the grave and he died. And when I say that he died, what I mean is that he died. There's no breath. There's no heartbeat. There's no sign of life. You see, God is a God of justice. And the penalty for our sin equals death. That's what Christ did on the cross. And then just three days later, in accordance with the scriptures, he was raised from the grave. And when I say that he was raised, what I mean is that he was raised. Lungs breathing, heart pumping, blood pulsing through his veins. The things that he promised were true. He is the risen son of God, offering life to me and you. Turning our mourning into dancing, our weeping into life laughing our sadness into joy by his mercy we are called his own by his grace we will never be left alone by his love he is preparing our home and by his blood we sing before his throne that jesus paid it all on to him i owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. 
so now we as his bride are the ones waiting like the saints that came before us we're anticipating he has shown us that this world is fading and he has caused our desire to be for him and so church stay ready keep your heart focused and your eyes steady worship him freely never forgetting his great love for you Emmanuel God with us Once again, we just want to say welcome to Motion City Church. We're so glad you're here this morning. Hopefully everyone is doing well. You guys doing well? Excellent, excellent. Happy, again, officially December, everyone. I know that for some of you, you are bursting with a new found type of energy because December is here and the snow has fallen and we are in the month of Christmas. Uh, the other day, I was getting coffee over at Vicinity Coffee off of, off of Nicollet Avenue, and, and I was kind of engaging with my barista, and, I, and we were just talking about Christmas and plans and, and what, what, what each one does, and she just got this big smile on her face, and she just was like, man, it's like I was created for this season. And everything inside of me wanted to, like, straight up preach it down, like, right there. But I was like, you know what, that is, that's awesome. And I just smiled. And, and, and this morning, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2. Um, Luke, Chapter 2 is where we're going to be camping out together today. And we are continuing in our series called Anticipation in this season of Advent. Uh, as we talked about last week, Advent is a season, it's a time of, of waiting, it's a time of expectation, a time of anticipation as it, as it relates to the earthly birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we touched on uh, last week, or hopefully I hit pretty hard, uh, that when it comes to us living in 2016, we are a people living and waiting expectation and anticipation, not for a baby to be born, but for a king and savior to return once again. And so the truth is, just as they waited then, we are people who are in waiting now. And this morning I want us to read a very familiar passage found in Luke chapter 2. This passage is concerning uh, the angels of God heralding to the shepherds in the fields at night, shepherding their flocks, the coming of the Messiah. And so if you have a Bible, let's, let's, get, let's get on with it. If you don't have a Bible, we have verses up on the screen. Uh, Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8 says this. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. In the time that we have remaining, I want to point out three very specific things here that I think we can, if the Holy Spirit of God would be merciful upon us, lay before us the magnificence of the coming of Jesus in a way that will displace lesser beauties and really attune our hearts and minds to the beauty of the coming of the Messiah. And the first thing, is, if you're taking notes, is this. The first thing right out of the gate is God's economics— is not man's economics. 
God's economics is not man's economics. And the story, and this story that we read in Luke chapter 2 is going wildly the wrong direction in regard to normal earthly economics. Uh, Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite pastors and authors, he pastors a church in Manhattan called Redeemer Presbyterian. And I'm not sure if, if, if he's the one who came up with this phrase, but I remember uh, coming across it first in his preachings and in his writings. And so I'm just going to attribute it. Tim, if you ever listen to this, you're my boy. Let's get coffee sometime. <laughs> if Tim Keller calls me, I will l- literally poop my pants. Um, but, <laughs> but maybe, who knows? Stranger things have happened. Um, and I'm not sure, again, if he stole it or if he got it from somebody else, but I first heard it used with him, and so I'm going to credit him with saying it. And he talks about this idea of kingdom economics. He talks about how the economy in God's kingdom actually is upside down when it's compared to earthly economics. It's not the economy that we operate where we would see power as worthy and admirable. And God would say, no, the reality is, the truth is, meekness and lowliness is actually, in kingdom economics, the thing to be valued. See, humility over swagger is to be valued. That's kingdom economics. And what I mean by seeing that this story is turned upside down is that the, the, the angels are heralding good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't go to the, the, the epic uh, model Christians or model religious people. It's not the people that simply have epic quiet times at 5.30 every morning with God. The heralding of the kingdom of God, the coming of Jesus, didn't go to those who tithed 12% over 10 or 10% over 5, the heralding of the good news of the coming of Jesus did not fall on those who were morally upright or astute, but to those who were most broken, most hopeless, and most helpless, it comes to shepherds. Now my guess is that many of us haven't dove deep into the study of shepherding. And if you have, let's talk, because man, it's, it's it's a fun topic. But honestly, if it wasn't for this sermon series, I probably would not have dove in as deep into this as I maybe would have. But the, the, the truth is, shepherds in the first century were, were so not thought of well when it came to society. They were not, they were so they were so lowly thought of that if they were witnesses in a court of law, their witness would be automatically thrown out because they were considered disreputable people. They were viewed as being liars and thieves, morally unclean. And on top of this, they were fundamentally rejected by the first century Jews. They were fundamentally rejected as being those who were outside of the covenantal promises of God. They believed that that because they were shepherds, and by nature of what they did, they could not participate in the temple for sacrifices because they were keeping watch over flocks, and they could not obey the the cleanliness laws of the Jewish people of that day. So they were seen as breaking every single rule and being uh, so pushed outside of the norm of society that they weren't even, some some people, uh, some scholars even said they weren't even seen as people, but simply higher versions of animals in which they watched over. The religious elite of that day saw them as unclean, as filthy, as unwanted, as those who were outside of the good graces of God. Yet when it comes to the heralding of the good news to to all the hopes of the people of the world, God 
now recognizes, and God chooses not to come to the moral upright or elite, but rather the morally broken and hopeless. And see, that's in definition kingdom economics. And I think we need to remember and take some time to really marvel at that, to really process that. And what I mean when I say marvel at that, I, I mean what I found to be true is that people who are not Christians in, in just my conversations with people more often than not feel as though God is just simply mad at them or God already hates them. And when I have conversations with people, they, they, they basically just assume that because God hates them, they might as well hate him back. I don't know if you've come across people like this, but I have the privilege and, and blessing of coming across people like this pretty, pretty frequently and pretty often. People who are not Christians tend to think since God's already after me, well, forget him. Usually it's a different F word. I don't need him anyway. And there's animosity and anger in their hearts towards God because they think that God has written them off. Yet the good news is that God sent angels to shepherds. And then the other mistake in kingdom economics is Christians over time tend to isolate, them, isolate themselves away from the people who don't love Jesus, who aren't surrendered to him. Then they just kind of build up a, a protective layer of insulation of Christendom around their lives so they don't catch the sins in which the people of outside of the, uh, outside of the family of God are committing. The only problem is that the reality is whether you're a Christian or a sinner, the fact is you are a sinner. So wherever you are, and whatever you are, there you are, right? Thank you, Teresa. So you can build a wall as high as you want. And you can build it as thick as you want. And you can dig your ditch down as deep as you want. But the reality is you exist within that wall and within that ditch. So therefore, sin exists within that wall and within that ditch. Sin is still in your household because you're there and because I'm there. We have been fully forgiven and freely forgiven and forgiven forever, but we still have to battle with our flesh. And if, and if you don't believe that's true, as, as, as harsh as this might seem, you're, you're foolish. Because sometimes I battle the strongest temptations of sin Saturday night before Sunday mornings. See, we've bought, sometimes we, we buy into such a weird lie that is outside of the kingdom of God where there is no longer any need for grace. And, and, I, and I look at my life and, and how I live sometimes as if I am in need, without need of grace. And I have these moments where I just, I think to, I'm like outside of my body and I'm like, really, dude? Really, dude? Come on, man, like this is so absurd. That is so absurd. You, and here's the deal. If, if, if you think you are outside of need of grace, I want you to ask someone around you about you. I want you to ask someone around you about you. I mean, what a scary idea. And we see that God is sending angels from in the heavenly hosts to the shepherds is actually a pattern of how God will do his ministry. In Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we see this. It says this. It says, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. 
along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners, parenthesis, there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Some of you need to underline that. And maybe write on the side of your Bible, make friends with bad people. Get hands dirty. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Verse 16 says this, But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? Then Jesus heard this, and he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. One of the patterns in Jesus' life, in fact, the most common accusation made against Jesus was that he was the friend of sinners, and he had table with them. Now, when I talk about table, what I am talking about is multiple hours strung together over a meal and good conversation. Nearly, regrettably, a lost art in our culture today. We're all about speed and efficiency and at the cost of relationship, we'll choose speed and efficiency. There is a loss, actually, when it comes to speed and efficiency, and tabling together is long. It's an investment. It's rich in conversation. It's rich in good food. Man, we live in South Minneapolis. We could throw a rock and hit 15 good food places. We are not in absence of good places to eat. Jesus kept doing that with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, the morally upright, the elite, those we would look at and go, we would kind of like our kids to probably be like them. And it really bothered these Pharisees and scribes that Jesus preferred to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. That he would go to Zacchaeus' house. It was a great and incredible scandal. Jesus is not afraid of a scandal because at one time, you and I were scandalous. Jesus is not afraid of scandals. That he hung out with sinners who, con it was constantly murmuring about him, talked about him behind his back. In fact, it was, the, it was most often used to try and discredit the ministry of Jesus. He hangs out with those types of people. Well, he's friends with them. He's friends with people like that. Surely you can't believe who, what he says because look who he hangs out with. The reality is he's guilty by association. Yet we see through his life Jesus Christ being very serious about sin. We see Jesus being very serious about salvation. We see Jesus being very serious about holiness, ho serious about re repentance, and yet he is still a friend of sinners. And here's what I'm trying to really get at, and, 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 and if you can't see it, maybe I, if I can just explain it this way. To those who aren't Christians in the room, I want you to hear me when I point out to you that the coming of Christ in the story of Christmas is about God's friendship towards you. And not him coming with a new set of commandments that you better obey first. See, the thing I love about baby Jesus is baby Jesus is not hanging out in the manger holding commandments 11 through 20. 
That's not what's happening. He's wrapped up in swaddling clothes, in humility. We read in John 3, 17, and now here's the guy. I know John 3, 16 is the one that gets all the press, but in John 3, 17, it says this, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so to the non-Christian and to the Christian, this means that as lights to the world, we don't build giant walls with drawbridges. We don't consider ourselves better than anyone, but rather, as Christians, we are rescued and redeemed and now agents of reconciliation, which means the doors of our lives are lived open. And the truth is, I can honestly, I can, I can tell you from experience, I have felt the sting of being in association with those types of people. It's a hard life, but the truth is, at the end of it, at the end of it, I would rather, I would rather be known as somebody who existed for other people than simply for himself. If the biggest accusation against my life is that I was a pastor who hung out with bad people, then that's, that's, I'll, I'll take it. I think on my tombstone, other than pepperoni and cheese, what I would love for it to say is, is that he lived like Jesus. If that's the world's greatest, if that's the church's greatest accusation against me, then I'll, then I'll take it. See, the reality is, if, if, if we're Christians, we should be friends of sinners. Lost people are not projects, nor are they pets. And I think maybe for some of us, we need to re-ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to break our hearts and give us a deep love and affection for those who are not yet followers of Jesus yet and to feel the burden of, and the weight for them that we would be people who cry out for them, who spend time on our knees and on our faces for those in our families and those within our community of friends who are so searching and so lost because it's amazing what happens when the people of God pray. See, the reality is you can't save them. That's not your job. You're a terrible God. I am a terrible God. I can't save anybody, yet I can pray and I can cry out and I can plead with the Lord to save See, the reality is we can answer questions. You can answer questions. You can have them into your home. You can engage in deep, meaningful friendships. You can be the incarnation of Christ in their life, God dwelling among, among those who have rebelled against him because you have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. And we have Jesus in this story coming into the world, engaging shepherds like us. Point number two is this, if you're taking notes, is God, God's glory reveals true beauty. God's glory reveals true beauty. When the angels show up and say, glory to God in the highest, what is being declared is that there is now a beauty that exists in the world that displaces all other beauties. It lessens other beautiful things because of, uh, because of how beautiful he is. And there is a magnificence now visible in Christ that lessens the magnificence of other at one time magnificent things. 
Maybe this example, because I like food. I'm going to use a food example, surprise. And I'm really hungry right now, so. Hopefully we're going somewhere good for lunch. Babe, we going somewhere good for lunch today? Global markets. I'm going to eat Thai food and American food and Israeli food. I'm going to just eat all of it. Just bring all the food. I'm so hungry. Um, but if you want to go to global market, come on. It's going to be a good time. So maybe this will help. I'm going to use a food analogy. I don't have a problem with beef jerky. I actually like beef jerky. It's, it's, it's my favorite travel food outside of gummy bears. Why was that funny? <laughs> gummy bears are great. Um, you can get them for a dollar at Target in the small little personal bag. Go visit Andrew at the Richfield Target and grab a, a bag of, of gummy bears. But uh, no, I like beef jerky, and I like, you know, it's, it, it's almost like that trick that it's actually sustaining food. But, um, but if, it's, if it's a choice between beef jerky and a New York strip, I'm going to choose the New York strip. That's a no-brainer. If Jen were to come to me and goes, here's the deal, I've got either a Slim Jim for you for dinner or I've got this amazing, heaven-blessed cut of beef, I'm going to pick the heaven-blessed cut of beef. And I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to just worship God in the process of doing that. See, it's not the fact that beef jerky isn't good, but there is something better. It's not that beef jerky is bad, but there is something more wonderful than beef jerky. And so in your life, let me ask you this. In your life, what is most magnificent? Can I promise you something? Jesus Christ is more magnificent than that. There is something more beautiful than the most beautiful thing that you've ever experienced in your life. There is something more magnificent, something more, more transcendent. Glory to God in highest heaven. Everything else in our life gets displaced and what is this beauty? What is this magnificence? magnificence? He actually says that the angels actually praise it in the next line. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth with whom God is pleased. There's a um, verse in Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is, is death. And here's what that means. Yes, we understand that there is, is physical death. We understand that at the end of our lives, we will breathe a last breath. But I think more of what it speaks to when it comes to our life outside of the magnificence and understanding of, the, of who Jesus is and what God's done for us, I think it's almost this death is almost an inability to experience the fullness of life in any given domain that God has placed us in. See, we're limited. We are limited. And so I have a, a, some amazing non-Christian friends who, who I love dearly and who have fantastic marriages. I think I would be a fool to say that, that, if, if, that only Christians have great marriages because I've seen uh, wonderful non-Christian marriages and horrible Christian marriages. And the fact is, I, I never want to say that they could have, but, but here's the thing. They, have a, they can have a better marriage than some Christians that I've come across, and the reality is he loves her and she loves him. And, 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 and as they get older, they're just just as flirty as they were when they were 20 years old, and, and which, you know, at sometimes can be kind of gross, but as I'm getting older, it's not as gross uh, now that I'm getting older. And, and, and here's what I know. Although I would never say that non-Christians can't have good marriages, I believe they can. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I don't, I don't think the Bible teaches 
that they can't. But what I will tell you is that the fullness of what marriage is meant to be cannot be experienced by those outside of Christ. On a scale from 1 to 10, outside of Christ, you could probably hit 11, or a 7 if you work really hard. But you'll never be a 10. You can't be because in order to get the fullness of all things, it requires reconciliation between you and your creator. There will be a glass ceiling experience without Jesus. And you can come, and, and people can come together emotionally with their wives or husbands. They can come together intellectually. Uh, they can come together physically. Yet the Bible talks about a mingling of souls that only occurs when two sinners have submitted their lives fully to Jesus Christ. And when that happens, now reconciled with our Creator, we are able to walk in intimacy with one another that is impossible outside of that. And that's the reason why we fight for right relationship with God to the glory of God as it writes everything else that we exist in as human beings. See, God makes peace where the wages of sin is death. And if you continue on the next part of the verse, it says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The coming of Christ is about the bringing of peace, which is the second candle in Advent, between the hostility of our rebellion against God and God's just right wrath towards our rebellion. Jesus steps into the middle of that and brings peace of his blood shed on the cross, absorbing all of God's wrath towards those who would believe and be replacing it with God's pleasure in the imputed righteousness of Jesus given to us upon salvation. In conclusion, I want to invite the worship team to come back up. In conclusion, I want to give you point number three, and I want to read one more text to you. Point number three is this, and I so apologize for this. But point number three is no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. That is the most Christian t-shirt I promise I will ever get in this church. But as I was praying about this, as I was praying for you as God has been burdening my spirit towards the difficulty of what for many of you this season encompasses I don't think there's any better way to place it than if there's no Jesus there's no peace but when we know Jesus we know peace Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 this is what it says. It says, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. See, in this place this morning, if you're not a Christian, that means surrendering your life to Jesus. So let's be just real honest once again with ourselves, please. We are very crummy gods. And what I'm about to say, I don't mean for it to be scandalous and I don't mean for it to be condemning, but the reality is no one has betrayed you, no one has deceived you or made a mess of your life as constantly as you have. You are perpetually your own worst enemy. I'm not saying that in your life there haven't been difficult things. There haven't been difficult times that have occurred to you. I'm not saying that your parents weren't awful people. Maybe they were or maybe they weren't. I'm not saying no one has wounded you, but no one has wounded you more than you have wounded you. 
No one has not followed through and broken their promises to you like you have. No one has lied to you more than you've lied to you. And the truth is you might be doing it right now. You might be hearing the words that I'm saying, and you might be dishing out the same set of lies that you've continued to tell yourself and that you're continuing to tell yourself, well, well, that's not true. That would be you lying to you. And because that's the case, a lot of the angst and the lack of peace that you and I feel, because things don't seem to be going your way, are because is because you're trying to be God, and, and, and again, we're, we're terrible gods. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts takes place when we surrender the totality of our lives to Jesus. See, the Christian life is not about living perfectly here on earth. It's about daily and hourly and every minute and every moment surrendering your heart to Jesus. Surrendering your anticipation to Jesus, surrendering your expectations and assumptions to Jesus, surrendering your past to Jesus, surrendering your presence, present to Jesus, surrendering your future to Jesus, because the truth is you will make a mess of it outside of Jesus. It's almost as simple as saying, God, I can't, but I trust that you can. So I want us to be honest with ourselves this morning. Where is our peace established in? What is our peace established in? Who is our peace established in? And I think that, uh, and I think that as we as we close this morning, I, I want to. I just want to take an opportunity for us to just kind of stop in the midst of whatever as the worship team keeps playing. I want you to do this, this self-evaluation thing. I know it's super scary, and again, like I just said, about our, and maybe you're thinking, well, didn't you just say that I'm a liar to myself? Yes, that's true. But the, the amazing thing about God is he gives us the Holy Spirit. And what I'm going to ask you to do in the next moment is simply shut yourself out of your own head Shut yourself out of your own experience and simply ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what and who your peace is in. See, the truth is I, I can't change anybody and I hate that about my job. I can't do anything but preach the word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit does something in your life. And it's awesome because I don't have to feel the anxiety about what you think about me or whether you stay or, or, or leave. I try not to get caught up in any of that, and I, and I just get to go, God, I want to be faithful to you. I want you to be the, I, I want you to leak hope and to leak peace like we talked about last week over experiences and situations. I'm just a broken, messed up, weird vessel that you have chosen to use. And so in, in the next few moments, I want us to just take time and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you 
what your peace is in and who your peace is in. And we talked about last week that God can't lie. He's not a liar, so he will speak truth to you. So just for the next few moments, can, I just, can we just ask the Holy Spirit to just speak to us and just simply ask him this question, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me what and who my true peace is in? I love about this time of year is is that it represents the fact that peace has been established between us and God through the person of Jesus. So this morning, our big idea, our takeaway is simply this. Don't simply settle for a peace of God. Establish yourself in the peace of God. Don't just settle for a peace of God. Establish yourself in the peace of God. Would you stand? And I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you, uh, God, that you would establish your peace in our hearts right now. God, this time of year can be very overwhelming and discouraging and dysfunctional for so many. And God, I would be naive to assume that it isn't for many in this room. And But God, circumstances come and circumstances go. Seasons come and seasons go, God. But I believe that you are the constant. And God, you don't simply give us peace. You are our peace. And so, Father, would you just reestablish that connection between those who need a connection reestablished? God, would you bring peace to uncertainty? Would you bring peace to the turmoil in which we existent at times because Jesus you came to bring us peace so will we, will we hold on to that would we, will we not just settle for a piece of you but will we settle for the peace that you are that you bring that you give and God as we respond and worship to you God may we respond knowing that you are the God who holds it all together who holds it all in your hands so that we don't have to worry about anything We don't have to worry about anything. Because, God, you've got us covered. You've always had us covered. You are our supplier. You are our foundation. You are our provider. You are our king. And, God, I declare your kingship over circumstances and situations going on right now. Lord, we love you. Thanks for loving us so well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Motion City Church podcast. We want to be able to walk with you and beside you as you go throughout life. So if you ever have a need for prayer, we want to be able to pray with you. Please email us at motioncityprayer at gmail.com. We would also love to have you join us in person next week. We meet on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. at Falwell School of Performing Arts. We hope you have a fantastic week.